This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast, with also a special edition of the Becker's Behavioral Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Brian Palmer, and Dr. Palmer serves as the lead of Vice President of Mental Health and Addiction at Alina Health. Alina Health, a wonderful system located in Minneapolis. He'll tell us more about that and more about what he's seeing and what, what he's doing and, and more. Dr. Palmer, can you take a moment and introduce yourself and tell us about yourself in Alina Health? Sure, absolutely. Really a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Alina is a not-for-profit healthcare system in Minnesota and Western Wisconsin. We have 11 hospitals, 90 clinics, specialty services, and home care. And we're really aligned around a mission of whole person care that systematically addresses mind, body, spirit, and community. And that really is why I was drawn to work for Alina, is that commitment to seeing whole people and really looking at the, the fullness of health. And I came to Align after a career that included leadership in academic, uh, academic psychiatry. Fascinating. And, and what, in terms of mental health today and addiction treatment, what are some of the trends you're following? I mean, everybody is, I think, familiar that we're going through as difficult a time as ever from a mental health perspective. Uh, whether it's things like addiction deaths, opioid deaths being way up again, to just generally people struggling from a mental health perspective, what do you follow? What do you see? And give us, you know, a, a better viewpoint than my thirty thousand foot viewpoint of that. Yeah, no, your viewpoint is unfortunately accurate and and good. I think there are maybe three things we could talk about. First. Um, there are going to be some legacies of COVID. You talked about addiction, and unfortunately with addiction, as people increase their use of a given substance and establish a new pattern of use, they tend not to go back to the old pattern. And so when we look at a 50% increase in opioid deaths, that is just the tip of the iceberg of population-level increase in substance use. And so we are really trying to prepare for a future that includes um, integrated addiction treatment just as a standard part of healthcare. I think children and adolescents is probably going to be the other major COVID legacy. And, you know, when the Surgeon General declares a national emergency, that's no small detail. And I think kids have lost a big chunk of the last two years of their lives, and we are going to continue to need to care for them. And I think what the third is a little bit bigger picture. What it has exposed is the risk of the fragmentation of our mental health care system and the need urgently to more tightly integrate that system. So I think every day, you know, we have 250 inpatient beds and 450 partial program chairs, and we're got 150 of our clinicians throughout primary care, and I could go on. But our our my chair, I think about like how do we tighten that integration within our own system, and how do we extend partnerships with the counties to provide you know food and economic assistance and meet social determinant needs, and have that become an integrated part of the mental health and addiction care that we just take for granted as normal care. And I think as we as we continue to move forward in mental health and addiction, as we have, you know, really appropriately have the national spotlight, I think if we can address that integration of the system, it's really going to be important going forward. Thank you. And it seems like there's so many different parts of the integration of the system. There's a lot of discussion we hear of integrating more into sort of the primary care physician's office, the clinician's office. It seems like there are more and more things being asked of sort of primary care physicians. There's not enough behavioral health providers. How do we sort of manage this in a time when shortages just seem so significant? 
Mm-hmm. In burden. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, uh, and I don't think there are simple answers, but I'll, I'll give you a few examples where you know I I worry about some of the disruptors in in mental health right now. There's a ton of venture capital going in, and the risk is that you could have you know access to national therapy platforms or online cognitive behavioral platforms that really aren't connected to the rest of the healthcare system. So there's no access to an ED or partial programs or all of the other parts of what mental health care delivery should include. But say we bring those internally. So our cognitive behavioral platform is only allowed to be prescribed by primary care providers, but we require it be coached by one of our team. And so we've got a line of sight to how the patient's doing as they work through asynchronous psychotherapy. And for a lot of patients, they really prefer it. It's certainly cheaper, it's scalable, and it's able to be deployed. And so I think that becomes a solution, but deploying that solution in a way that integrates the system and tightens the connection, I think is really where the key where the key is. I think another example is the the ability to use tele um, has been a gift. I mean, there's been two parts of that gift. One, we did it so fast that we took, you know, my special day as a psychiatrist, we're not known for moving very fast and adopting new technology and change. Um, but in about three weeks, two years ago, we moved our 94% of our patients to virtual and it unleashed this like creativity, like we could do that. And so I think there's this culture of, wow, we could really use tele in ways that tighten up integration. So you could serve rural Minnesota, for example, and have a group room with a screen on the wall. So a couple of people are at home and six people are live in person. So you could manage your capacity differently and meet the community needs better that way. And that's so important. I mean, that sort of is, I mean, teleradiology really grew out of this complete necessity. You just didn't have radiologists in rural areas. They just, there just was no way to do it without teleradiology. So it was sort of the precursor to a lot of this. What are things that, like when you talk about some of, are there any of these venture capital funded things or other alternatives or other things that you sort of, you know, are particularly excited about? Is there anything that you see out there that you're like, they really seem to be getting it. And I don't care if they're a sponsor, advertiser, or anything, just anything that you find that's, that you're excited about and you're free to say not particularly. I just <laughs> prefer you don't slam anybody too bad so we don't get sued. But you're, you're free to say, no, not really. But is there anything you find that, you know, I watch some of these virtual programs through the, um, from the addiction standpoint. And I've been a close-up observer of addiction and part of our family. And so was not particularly impressed with all the virtual offerings everybody was selling, but there probably are some great ones. But how do you sort of look at some of this stuff in a changing world? What mm-hmm. is there anything that you're you particularly look at and say, this is terrific. We should do more of that. Yeah. A couple of areas. I think the principle I come back to as I am you know, deep in the world of looking at um, all these options is that let us do something we can't currently do. So actually, I think it could be risky to just have one of the tele companies provide, say, as your example, addiction care that are trying to build their own business model that's separate from, say, the rest of the healthcare delivery system. That's that fragmentation issue, et cetera. You really want to scale internally the ability to provide that care. But what we need to do in psychiatry urgently is take best practices and 
have scalable ways to deploy them to do things we can't currently do. So say, for example, suicide care drives hospitalization, drives a good deal of mental health care usage. And we don't often have the highest quality of care. So we, we know a lot, we've learned a lot in the last two decades about how to prevent suicide and it involves helping people recognize their own suicidal process, learn about it, plan for it, integrate that care. So we've, we have partnered to help test research and now deploy a system across you know, all of our EDs so that our 80 really talented crisis clinicians can work with a patient on a tablet to do an evidence-based suicide risk assessment, have the patient visit with people that have had lived experience being suicidal, learn skills, have lethal means counseling, have a crisis stability plan when they leave so that we can provide them really high quality kind of best-in-class care by partnering with an outside group. But that like extends our ability to you know, integrate our system, drive up the care quality, use resources effectively. Those are the models that I think really excite me. Thank you. And you, you are the system of 80 crisis counselors. How does that number look? How do you, how does the system get to that number? You get, you know, how does that look, staffing of crisis counselors? Yeah, we, so they cover 12 emergency departments, um, 24 Seven. And so they are a team that can, they all have home bases, but then they also may cover via tele additional emergency departments, depending on patient need. In addition to those crisis counselors, we have a team of psychiatrists that partner alongside them um, when available. But it's really been a, it, it's been a strength, I think, to be able to provide that level of urgent support, but then our crisis counselors can access urgent appointments into our partial programs, into our outpatient clinics, et cetera, so they could really try to wrap care around patients in the EDs. And we've actually, over the last four years, been able to increase the percent of people we discharge from an ED with stability at that point from, to, I think now, 63%. It was like 55%. So it's been a pretty focused effort to try to meet people in a crisis and then get them the care that they need urgently and not simply have to say, well, you're going into the hospital or whatever else it is to really try to use the system well. And, and how does the, how easy is it, easy is probably the wrong word, challenging easy, how difficult is it for the ER to know they've got to access this resource? Because I take it the resource is not always on site, sometimes it's by phone, to know that, to, to be familiar, we've got this resource, I mean, how much time did it take to integrate that in so people knew the resources available to use it in the right way? And I take it that's a not billable service, or maybe it is a billable service. How does that look in terms of economics as well? Just a quick sense of what hospitals think about, because hospitals think about adding care navigators on, for example, and care navigators are generally not billable, but hospitals all need they know they need them. But what about the crisis counselors? Is it just out of the pocket yeah, of a so, line so these, is there... No, these we we do use um, care navigators, and as you say, there are different economic models. But the the model of emergency services is absolutely billable. So these are all licensed clinicians who are able to bill for the time that they spend with a patient providing a crisis intervention, and that they they really can not only from a fee for service world make a financial model, but also as Aligner really tries to be on the front edge of a path toward value-based care and value-based contracting, that's where they really are worth their weight in gold. Because if you can help somebody sleep in their own bed with a follow-up tomorrow morning, 
that has real value to the system. So both in a fee-for-service billable way, it makes good sense, but also in a driving value way, it's even more valuable. Thank you. One more question, and we'd love to have you back whenever we can get you back on. The question of what are you most focused on and excited about this year? I mean, you're you're doing fascinating stuff there. And what are you most excited about? I mean, this this crisis counselor seems like that works great. What else are you excited about, focused on? You know, obviously there's so many daunting things, but give me something else positive that you're focused on and excited about this year. Yeah, I, I think we've, we have covered actually a pretty sweeping <laughs> threads of what we're working on. The the one thing we haven't really talked about that I just want to emphasize and is a, a deep passion is the workforce. That what we've collectively in healthcare been through over the last two years, we are seeing rates of burnout and distress in our providers that is really high. And I think the experience of feeling thwarted in a frequent way, thwarted by COVID, thwarted by systems, thwarted by numbers, thwarted by things that don't work, really burns people out. And we are deploying a pretty comprehensive strategy with stigma reduction and battle buddies and one-to-one work and individual patient care, et cetera, um, leadership development. And our CEO, Lisa Shannon, has been deeply committed to saying this really is a high priority for the organization that we are going to address the the belonging and the sense of well-being of our workforce as a core part of what we do. And so that's that's really what I'm I'm actually very excited about what we're doing in that area and looking forward no, to it. And, and that is so critical and so daunting. I mean, you, you really do feel like for bedside providers or people in the four walls of the hospital, aside from the mental health challenges of everybody else, those that are in the four walls of the hospital, in our, you know, that seems like they've literally have been through a war the last couple of years. And then as more and more choose to retire, like they've done their two-year stint, it's almost like being in the military, they've done a two-year stint and they're ready to be done. That causes even more stress for those that remain because we've got this vicious cycle of not enough people that want to be at the bedside and, and trying to address that from a, you know, how can you add so many benefits, so many positives, so much culture, so much counseling to try and keep the boys ready to be in that game every single day. But it does seem daunting, doesn't it? It, it Absolutely. But essential. If we're going to really have the healthcare system we deserve going forward, it really has to be in the center of where our focus is to ensure that the, the people that do the work um, have the support and are able to do the, the very difficult work they have to do every day. It, it sure seems like it. it uh, Brian, Dr. Palmer, I want to thank you for joining us. What a pleasure to visit with you. I, I find one of the great pleasures I have is talking to sort of the mental health community in our country, whether it's psychiatrists, psychologists, wherever it is it's helping. It's just such a fascinating perspective and so helpful, and we all need it. So thank you so much for taking the time to, to visit with us on the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate the conversation.